All right. Well, welcome in, everyone. Good to have you for Sunday School. I'm going to go ahead and get started with a word of prayer, and then we'll look into the Word of God today. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this morning, and I thank you for your Word. Through your Word, you communicate to us, and you give us words and concepts. You give us your heart in ways that we would not be able to understand without you speaking to men to record for us, to preserve your word, uh, to bring it to a language that we can understand. And we thank you for that. That was not something you had to do, it was something you chose to do because you loved us. And I pray that you would bless us this morning as we study your word, as we seek to understand what it means in our heads, and as we seek to, to respond correctly to what it means in our hearts. Lord, bless me as I teach. I ask that you would uh, use these words in ways that go beyond my own ability um, or my own uh, just ability to, to teach and understand these things. And I pray that your spirit would be at work in what I say and how we hear this morning. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, welcome in. So this morning, I have a question for you all. Uh, just about if you, something that I've been thinking about as I've studied the word this week is about the way the different people talk. And have you ever heard someone's voice in whatever different context, and you just immediately thought, oh, this voice is just exactly right for this kind of situation? And for me, that's when I listen to the Royals baseball games on the radio. When I hear Denny Matthews' voice, it's gruff, and it's gravelly, and it's really kind of pessimistic. It's blunt, because he's calling a game in August for the Royals, who've already lost 100 games, and it doesn't matter. If you had like a really excited football announcer like Gus Johnson yelling at every pitch, it just wouldn't fit. That wouldn't be right for that context, right? Or if you heard someone say, Monday, 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 monster truck rally, that fits. Whereas like a golf announcer, Monday, 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 like that just doesn't fit, right? There's certain voices that fit certain context, certain situations. Or maybe you can think of a time when you were a kid and you got hurt. And the voice you heard was your mom's, speaking words of comfort, saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Let's make this better. It's going to be okay. And that's a voice that you can hear even as an adult calling up your mom in a situation that's overwhelming. And she says, hey, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. There are certain voices from people that fit context perfectly. They're appropriate for those situations. And in scripture, we see a variety of voices like this in the different authors. The last three weeks, we've considered the gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke, three men who wrote accounts of Jesus with large amounts of overlapping material. As our teachers have pointed out, each of these authors did have specific intents and they had different goals that are, are unique to them. But in large part, they share the same voice as they're presenting the ministry and the gospel of Jesus. And that's a good thing, that they share that voice to give those perspectives. But the fourth author we meet in the New Testament, the Apostle John, speaks with a significantly different voice than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this doesn't mean that his style is better than the others, or vice versa. But as we'll see, John's approach in his gospel is highly intentional. It fits just right. It's the right voice for what he is trying to say. And just as the soothing tones of a loving mother are just what you need when you're in pain, so also the loving, simple words of John cut to the heart of those who read them. 
You can ask nearly any believer, and they can warmly describe something deeply meaningful that they have read over the years in this gospel. And today we're going to be unpacking this special gospel and shedding light on some of the details that are helpful to understand it. And perhaps even more so, we'll be attempting to highlight that unique tenderness in the voice of John as we read his gospel. Now we're going to approach our time in three different sections. First, we're going to discuss some background matters that will help us situate the book in our minds. Second, we'll spend some extended time discussing some of the major themes in the gospel, the things that John comes back to. And then finally, <coughs> we're going to briefly look through the outline of the book, fleshing out how the apostle uses those themes to proclaim his gospel message. But let's start with the background. There are three different aspects to the background that we want to unpack, and that's beginning with the author. And I've already showed my hand a little bit uh, in describing that the author of this book is the apostle John. Now, like the other three gospels, John does not sign his name anywhere in the book, but we do have a clear internal and external testimony that he is the author. Internally, there's many factors that point to, to the fact that John wrote this. Eight of the 12 disciples are mentioned by name in this gospel, but John's name never occurs. The only Johns that are mentioned by name are John the Baptist and John the father of Peter. And that's interesting because as one of the most prominent disciples, John occurs regularly in Matthew and Mark and Luke, and it seems odd that he would not be named. But while the name John doesn't occur referring to the disciple, we are throughout the book told about the disciple whom Jesus loved or the beloved disciple, or sometimes just the disciple, or the other disciple. There's a consistent reference to this disciple who isn't named. And this is the disciple who leaned on Jesus' side at the Last Supper. It's the disciple who ran with Peter to the empty tomb on Sunday morning. Peter asked Jesus about how long this disciple would live in chapter 21, and Jesus indicated that this disciple's ministry would last as long as God desired, perhaps for a very long period of time. And directly following this profession from Jesus, that beloved disciple actually takes credit for writing the gospel. Chapter 21, verse 24, he says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So who is this beloved disciple? Well, it could only be John. As a member of the inner circle of the disciples and Peter and James and John, he had a large role in the ministry of Jesus. And like I said, it, it wouldn't make sense that he wouldn't go unmentioned. The topic of love that goes throughout the gospel of John is also a topic that permeates the epistles of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And it also would then follow that he would describe himself in his gospel as the disciple of love. The style and voice of the Gospel of John also matches the style and voice of the epistles and of Revelation, which John wrote. And in addition to this internal evidence that John is the author, there's also a large amount of external evidence from the first members of the church following the apostles. The Gospel of John was written later than the other three Gospels, which we'll discuss in a moment. And it only makes sense that he's actually the only disciple that would have been alive at the time of this writing. And in addition, the church father Irenaeus, who himself was a disciple of a man named Polycarp, who we know was actually John the Apostle's disciple. So Irenaeus is maybe you could say the spiritual grandson of the Apostle John. He wrote in the second century, John, the disciple of the Lord, who had even rested on his breast, 
himself also gave forth the gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. And so there is a consistent external witness that the Apostle John is the writer of this letter. And now that we know that he's the author, we can actually build quite a, a good picture of who he was as a man to describe him as an author. John and his brother James were known as Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder, which likely referred to their strong or brash personality. And so it speaks volumes that the son of thunder would come to describe himself as the beloved disciple. It shows the impact that spending time with Jesus had on him, that he would, even in his nature, perhaps change from someone who is brash and bold to describing himself in terms of love. John likely came from a family of means, as his father Zebedee appears to have had a successful fishing business, and his mother Salome is likely one of the financial benefactors of Jesus' ministry who would go along with them to support the disciples. And it's likely that he had Jewish political connections, as John 18 refers to when he was able to get into the illegal trial of Jesus because he was known to the high priest. John was also involved in the life of the church throughout the book of Acts, and Paul refers to him as one of the pillars of the church in Galatians chapter 2. By the time of the writing of this gospel, John was an old man who had lived a long, full life following Jesus, leading the church, and carrying immense authority because of what he had done, and perhaps more so because of what he had seen by following Jesus. And yet this authoritative patriarch of the church humbly deflects any title, and he speaks as a beloved disciple. He speaks as a friend. He doesn't speak with pomp and pride, but with simplicity and humility. And he lovingly brings the glorious message of Jesus to the world in words that a child could understand. He writes in a very simple way. So that is the, gospel, or the author, John the Apostle. And moving on from the author, I want to briefly describe the setting for the Gospel of John. We don't exactly know the date that John wrote this Gospel, but tradition and several internal factors indicate that he wrote this Gospel near the end of his life, well after the other Gospels were written. Uh, we're safe to say that it was written between 80 and 95 AD, over 50 years after the ministry of Jesus, and 30 or 40 years after the other synoptic Gospels were written. As we heard from Irenaeus, tradition following closely after his death holds that John was ministering as the elder of the church in Ephesus when he wrote this Gospel of John. Now, recognizing how late John wrote this Gospel helps us see more of his purpose. And that's the third aspect of the background. After the author and the setting, I want to describe the purpose. By the 80s or the 90s, the church in the Middle East and in Europe and Africa, it had a solid foundation from the apostles. They were flush with the writings of Paul and Peter who were, and others who were instructing the church, and they had a truthful, consistent testimony of the life and ministry of Jesus from Matthew and Mark and Luke. So why did John write another gospel if they were already established in this sense? Well, the synoptic gospels are so called because synoptic means from the same perspective. That soon or like sin, like synonym means the same. And optic has to do with seeing. So the synoptics are seeing things from the same perspective. Matthew and Mark and Luke were each distinct, 
but they were recording and presenting the ministry of Jesus from the same line of sight. And John presents it in a different manner. Another church father who wrote at the end of the second century, Clement of Alexandria, described John's gospel in this way. He said, last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain, he composed a spiritual gospel. Now, all four gospels are spiritual, obviously. They have spiritual elements. They're meant to, to speak to people's hearts and speak to them in a spiritual manner. But what Clement means is that John's aims were a little bit different than the synoptic gospels. He did not need to present a comprehensive account of Jesus' ministry to inform people that it happened. Instead, he's actually able to build on the work of the synoptic gospels, and he's able to present a pointed record of selected elements of his ministry to persuade people to believe. The synoptics freed him up to focus on these specific elements of the work and words of Jesus. The, the synoptics were presenting an accurate and verifiable and historical record that aimed to proclaim specific truths about his message. And John uses that foundation to say, look, I don't have to prove this again. Let's talk about what it means to believe this gospel. John gives us one of the most famous purpose statements of any book in the Bible in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We can see John's purpose with crystal clarity. Jesus did immense signs and wonders during his time on earth, but John isn't concerned with recording them all. Instead, the signs John did choose to record include a two-pronged purpose. First, he wrote this gospel so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And second, as a glorious result, he wrote this gospel so that people might have eternal life through that faith. Now take a step back and consider who John was. He's writing as a, a literal elder, likely at least in his 80s. He had spent his life shepherding the flock of Christ. And his entire ministry had been deeply affected by what he had heard and seen and felt while following Jesus. Christ's love for the church had infused John wholeheartedly. From 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, you get a deep sense of John's love for the flock, whom he refers to as his little children, his beloved. And this apostle recalled all that he had witnessed of the ministry of Christ, and he felt compelled to write it down, not to make a few bucks in a tell-all story, but to lovingly, tenderly reach out to the world and invite them to believe the gospel and to join him in eternal life. As you read the Gospel of John, you can't help but be moved at the level of your heart. It's too fine a distinction to say that the synoptics speak to the head and John speaks to the heart. That's really not exactly what's going on here. But John crafted his description of Jesus in such a way as to cut to the heart deeply and precisely and tenderly. And it's evident reading John in English, but even more so reading it in Greek, how simple and childlike his language is. Luke wrote as a, a doctor. He was scholarly, he's academic, he's precise. He has a, a broad and high vocabulary, which is good for what he's accomplishing. But John writes as a father. 
to a young child. He uses words that they will understand. He repeats concepts over and over to make sure they're getting it. And he circles around an idea with different words to make sure that they're understanding it as in any, any way that he can. He also draws attention to many of the word pictures that Jesus used. Just like we might describe a big concept to a child by using an example. He does this again and again. <coughs> if, you gave, <clears throat> if you gave a four-year-old a copy of Calvin's Institutes or the Confessions of Augustine, they likely would not learn much about God, right? The, the things in those books, there's, there's a lot of good truths, and people have benefited from those books over the years, but a four-year-old needs something more simple. They need a parent to slowly explain to them the truth of the gospel. They need stories that are written for children that illustrate specific aspects of the gospel. They need people to demonstrate in their words and actions what the gospel looks like. And this is what the gospel of John does. John desired to simply and deeply describe the person and work of Jesus in such a way that it spoke to the heart that even a child could understand. John describes the work of salvation again and again and consistently shows that Jesus calls us to respond to this message in faith and repentance. And so we can truly do no better than to say with John that his purpose is that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing, they may have life in his name. It is worth mentioning one other aspect to his purpose, though, that he doesn't maybe explicitly state, but he is very clearly trying to accomplish. Throughout the gospel, we see that John is consistently affirming the person and nature of Jesus Christ. You hear that in his purpose statement. He writes so that people may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, and that he is the Son of God. And this summarizes what he's saying throughout his whole gospel, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is fully God and fully man. And he was intentional to present and defend Jesus in this way due to false teaching that was beginning to creep into the church at the end of the first century. First and second and third John show that he's combating those false teachers at a specific level, writing letters to churches, even naming names of people. But in the Gospel of John, he's presenting his proofs at a global level and saying, this is the Christ. He is not a man whom God elevated to an exalted position. He's not God who descended and just pretended to be a human. Jesus was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. He became flesh and dwelt among us, and John saw his glory. Jesus is the true, beloved Son of God. And he truly died a human death in John's presence, and he truly resurrected, which again, John saw firsthand when he ran to the tomb on that glorious morning. And this shows the masterful way that John constructed his gospel, that even as he's writing in words that a child can understand, he's also weaving together deep doctrinal truths in an airtight manner to prove that Jesus is the Christ. So that is our background. At the end of John's life, years after many of the disciples have faded off the scene, John, the beloved disciple, wrote a gospel focused on compelling people to believe in Jesus, the Messiah. And with this background in mind, we're able to move on to the second aspect of the book, some of the major themes that John highlights. Now, there's a lot of overlap in these themes. A lot of things will kind of be 
talking about the same topic. And there's so many prominent themes in John, we can't be comprehensive today. But I wanted to highlight a few that are worth mentioning. Now, the first and perhaps the most prominent theme in the whole book is that of love. Many commentators title John's gospel as the gospel of love because of the significance of this theme. And I suppose that's obvious because what else would we expect from the beloved disciple but that he would talk about love? John clearly wanted to highlight this aspect of Jesus' life and teaching because it had impacted him so deeply. The love of God was definitive of Christ's ministry. And John describes the love between Jesus and his father repeatedly in chapters 3 and 5 and 10, 14, 15, and 17. He, he came back to this topic so much because Jesus talked about it so much. And it shed light on the intimacy that Jesus had with his father. They were two members of the Godhead who had loved each other from eternity past. John then famously describes how that love that God shares between the members of the Godhead, how that love overflows to us. Famously in John 3.16, where he says that when God sent Jesus to the world, that was an expression of his love for them. And John then defines love in John 15, 13, in terms of what Jesus has done. Where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And we see Jesus' love not just for the world in general, which is true, but even to individuals, as John describes the narrative of the gospel. You see his love in people to Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You see his love expressed to the 12 disciples, even to Judas, when he says that he, John says that he loved them to the end, when he washed all 12 of their feet at the Last Supper. We see Jesus even consistently forcing us to consider what we love. In chapter 3, he tells us that some love darkness. Chapter 12, he shows us that some love the glory of man. But believers are called consistently to love one another, to love God as he has loved us and loved others as well. And this is a theme that he returns to and fleshes out even more in the upper room discourse in chapters 13 through 15. And so when you read the book of John, you will come away with a deep knowledge, a deep sense of the love of God. Now, another prominent theme is that of salvation. And there are a few aspects of this theme that we'll flesh out in a moment. Salvation is kind of the overarching category. But it's worth pausing just to highlight this general theme because it's so central to John's purpose. John writes so that people would believe and have life, which is shorthand for saying that he writes so that people may be saved, saved from their sin. Throughout the gospel, we find descriptions of salvation in different images and terms. In chapter 1, John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. In chapter 3, John tells Nicodemus that to see the kingdom of God, one must be born again, spiritually, not physically, spiritually, by faith. And that really was God's purpose in sending people, to save people. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says to Nicodemus, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In chapter 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that he has living water which can quench her spiritual thirst, a topic he comes back to again in chapter 7. In chapter 6, Jesus says that he is the bread of life, and anyone who eats this bread will live forever. 
In chapter 8, he says he is the light of the world, and whoever follows him will have the light of life. In chapter 10, John, Jesus describes us as sheep for whom he lays down his life to provide life for us. And in chapter 11, Jesus shows that everyone who believes in him, though they die, yet they will live. They will experience a resurrection. And John shows us that Jesus has come to bring salvation. And he tells us that again and again and again in different terms, in different images, helping us to find something that sticks, that we can make sense of it in our minds. And as John describes salvation in terms of being saved, he also shows us the blessings of salvation. He describes what it means to have salvation, that it is abundant and rewarding. Salvation means being united to Christ, united as branches growing out of a vine. <clears throat> salvation means fellowshipping with the Spirit of God. It means dwelling with God forever. And it means that though we are hated by the world, we are eternally secure. We have nothing to fear. John shows that salvation is a gift from God that only God can give. It's something that only God can accomplish. There's 21, perhaps more, passages that focus on the sovereignty of God in salvation, showing that he is the only one who can give it. And yet there's another 25 that emphasize the necessity of us trusting in salvation. The salvation does not come except through faith. John tells us that salvation is only available as grace from God, and therefore we must believe it. Within this general topic of salvation, it's also worth highlighting that theme of belief. John uses terminology about faith or believing over a hundred times in his gospel, which is twice as much as all of the synoptics put together. As he states in his purpose, John does not just write so that people may know the things that Jesus did and said. He wrote so that they might believe in them. We cannot leave the truth of the gospel at the level of understanding. Jesus demands a response of faith. And John's gospel highlights the incredible blessing of Jesus Christ and shows many of the incredible facets of salvation that are available in him. He highlights life, eternal life. He describes being a part of God's family as children of God. He talks about light, how people in darkness can experience the light of life by trusting him. And as he talks about all of these blessings of salvation, he shows us again and again that if you want to experience them, you must believe. Everything he says about Jesus and salvation is true no matter what. That's regardless of how you respond to it. But for you to enjoy them, for you to experience the blessings of Jesus Christ, you must have faith. Salvation comes by letting go of any other means of security and instead relying completely on Jesus, trusting that he alone is satisfying. He alone can save. He alone is worthy. Chapter 3, verse 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And chapter 6, verse 35 says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Faith is necessary, and faith brings the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ. John also describes the nature of real abiding faith in chapter 15, showing what it looks like to believe in Christ. Faith leads to a transformed life, 
a life that loves God and loves others. And it does not leave you high and dry because it connects you with Jesus Christ. If faith connects you with God in such a way that he daily sustains you and gives you life. Faith also provides comfort. As Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus said this to his disciples as he prepared them for his departure. He's saying that faith leads to comfort. Faith leads to a transformed life. Faith leads to eternal life. And one more theme that John emphasizes is that of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit marks Jesus' ministry in chapter 1. How John the Baptist says, he, I saw him descend upon Jesus like a dove. And Jesus describes salvation as being born of the Spirit in chapter 3 as he talks to Nicodemus. As John focuses on the gospel of Jesus Christ, he does so in terms of the Spirit of God, showing that salvation is affected by the work of the Spirit in people's lives. In chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And Jesus also spends an extended period of the upper room discourse just before his crucifixion in chapters 14 through 16, describing the work that the Holy Spirit will do in the lives of the apostles and the church after he departs. Chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, the helper, the comforter, the advocate. He guides us into the truth. He convicts the world of sin through the gospel presentation of the church. He comforts believers in the absence of Jesus. And again, think of who John is at this moment. He's had a half century of experience seeing the spirit work in these ways. And he's leaning on that experience to say, I know that he has done this, and I know that the Spirit will continue to work in this way. So these are some of the prominent themes of the Gospel of John. And I actually would like to describe two more themes, but as you may notice, we are pretty close to the end of our time, and we have not gotten to the outline of the book of John. And so what I'd like to do is to look at these two themes and trace them through the book and use them to unpack the outline of the Gospel of John. So we'll actually combine those two together. Now at the largest level, the outline of John just splits right down the middle into two sections. Chapters 1 through 12 describe the bulk of Jesus' ministry, and chapters 13 through 21 describe the, the passion. And that's, you could say that's your outline. Chapters 1 through 12 is Jesus' ministry. Chapters 13 through 21 is Jesus' passion. And it's interesting because the first 12 chapters describe a three-year period in Jesus' life, from the beginning of his ministry up to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And yet chapters 13 through 19 describe about a 24-hour period. And it's amazing to see how much John has honed in and narrowed down to say, this is the event I want you to focus on. You can really see the weight that he's giving them there. The final two chapters in 20 and 21 are devoted to Jesus' resurrection and his post-resurrection ministry. And so as you read the book of John, if you feel like, oh, wow, this is really going fast. I'm, 
most of the way through Jesus' life, you're going to get halfway through the book and then say, okay, now let's slow down and pause and see what John is really focusing on. Now, these final two themes that we'll discuss are going to help us trace the story of the book of John. We're not going to be able to go into every chapter and look at all the details, but we'll at least be able to see some of the unfolding of John's ministry that he presents, or of Jesus' ministry, I should say. These last two themes are closely tied to John's purpose, and they further his goal that people would believe in Christ and have life in his name, as well as also defending the deity and person of Jesus Christ. And the first of these themes is that of signs. John uses the word signs 17 times in his gospel, and it is the main way that he describes the miraculous works of Jesus. As Jesus performed miracles, he was giving signs of who he really was. These miracles were not arbitrary acts of strength or power. They were signs that he was who he said he was. You can see John's style of writing. As, even as he's breaking down Jesus' miracles, he always describes them in the same way. And he's teaching them how to think about these miracles as people read about them. He's saying, hey, do you see Jesus doing these miracles? They are a sign of something. And what does the sign point to? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believe in him. He's even interpreting Jesus' miracles as he writes the letter. And there are seven prominent signs throughout the book that most commentators recognize. We'll point out these seven, as well as perhaps another one or two, that you could consider signs as well. These seven are the miraculous works that John chose to include in his gospel, and all but one is explicitly described as a sign. That is the first theme that we'll look at. But the other theme is Jesus' use of the phrase, I am, in describing himself. Now, by my own conservative count, I found at least 16 different occasions that Jesus uses the phrase, I am, to say something about himself. And this is both evidence of John's simple, helpful style, but also an indication of something much more significant. Jesus said, I am, so many times because he was explicitly referring to the name of God that he used of himself when talking to Moses. Yahweh, I am who I am. When Jesus says, I am, we're not just learning about his state of being from a helpful linking verb saying, I am whatever. We are seeing God himself describe himself as such. Jesus is the great I am. And so using these two themes of signs and I am, we can trace the outline. As John tells the story of Jesus, he switches seamlessly between extended sermons of Jesus, his teaching, and narratives, especially miracles that Jesus was doing. As he switches between these, he also intersperses some notes of commentary, kind of explaining what was going on in the background, or giving his own pastoral application of what is happening. And the book begins with one of those sections of John's commentary, where he's explaining the situation. We're familiar with these words, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We see shortly after that God himself, Jesus Christ, dwelt among us as one of us. Before Jesus even gets a chance to speak, John has already informed us that Jesus is the great I am and that he is also fully, truly man. Moving into Jesus' ministry, we see Jesus' first sign in chapter 2 when he turns water into wine at a wedding feast. 
This is a sign not recorded in the other Gospels, and it shows how John was shedding new light on the ministry of Jesus. Chapters 3 and 4 show Jesus in conversation with individuals, a high-ranking member of the Sanhedrin in Nicodemus, and a lowly Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And as he speaks with this woman at the well, Jesus boldly proclaims, I am he, that is, the Messiah, the Christ. This is his first statement of I am. In chapters 4 through 6, we find four more signs from Jesus' ministry. (coughs) His second sign occurs at the end of chapter 4, when he heals the son of a ruler without even being physically present to do the healing. In chapter 5, he heals a paralytic man at the Bethesda pool, his third sign. Chapter 6 contains signs 4 and 5, a public sign in the feeding of the 5,000, and a private sign to his disciples as he walked to them on the water. In chapter 6, Jesus also uses I am language twice more. First with the disciples, as he comes to them on the water and says, Do not fear, it is I. Or perhaps more literally, do not fear, I am. Jesus was God with them, and he was telling them, do not be afraid, God is with you. Then speaking with the crowds the next day, after miraculously providing bread to them, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, showing that he, as God, was truly what they needed for their provision. In chapter 8, Jesus speaks several times of being the I am, highlighted by saying, I am the light of the world, showing his illuminating power in our lives, and also saying, before Abraham was, I am, which was a phrase that his listeners instantly knew was a claim to be God, that he was not just, again, saying something interesting with grammar, but that he was really claiming to be the great I am. Chapter 9 describes the healing of a man born blind, which was the sixth sign of Jesus' ministry. And it's interesting, as you look at these different signs throughout the Gospel of John, there's a couple times where John says, this was the first sign, this was the second sign. But more often, you find the crowds in the narrative after saying they were all talking about the signs Jesus was doing. Everyone knew that these were signs, and John is highlighting that for us. In chapter 10, We find another statement of Jesus claiming to be the I am, uh, where he says, I am the door for the sheep, I am the good shepherd, and I am the son of God. And chapter 11 shows us the seventh sign of Jesus, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And even within that sign, he gives us another statement of I am, where he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet he shall live. But at this point, you may have noticed that all of the signs have already been mentioned. There's been seven signs throughout the first 11 chapters because John mainly used those signs to move through Jesus' ministry up to the event of the Passion Week. But in chapter 13, John shifts gears as he moves to those final days of Jesus. In addition to the first seven signs, you could say that his crucifixion and resurrection was a sign in and of itself, pointing in a miraculous way to who Jesus truly was. And if it is a sign of Jesus' ministry, I would say it's the most impactful sign 
of his actual purpose of coming that people might believe in him. In, this, in these last several chapters, as I mentioned before, we see Jesus giving the upper room discourse, his last information to the disciples where he really shared his heart with them. And in this upper room discourse in chapters 14 through 16, we find several more uses of Jesus saying, I am. In chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. And even as he says goodbye to his disciples one final time, he's reminding them that he is God. Then as they go out from the upper room, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he is betrayed. He meets with a group of soldiers who were there to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. When they tell him this, he responds, I am he, or again, more literally, I am. And it's very evident that they know what he is saying because whether unintentionally or in a fit of rage, they all fall back and fall to the ground when he says this. He is claiming to be God and they know it. John records the events of Jesus' betrayal and crucifixion and resurrection as an eyewitness. And you see these occur in chapters 18 and 19. While the synoptics record all of these events, John is actually the only author of a gospel who was present inside at the trial and at the foot of the cross. He and Peter were also the only two disciples who ran to the tomb and saw only grave clothes inside. And this gives a special importance to what John is saying. Not that the accounts of the synoptics are wrong. Of course they're right and they're accurate and God uses them. But John was there. He saw it firsthand. He felt these things, and he's giving us insight that we've never seen before about these events. In addition, John concludes his gospel with the events of Jesus' post-resurrection ministry, how he appeared in locked rooms, how he provided a miraculous catch of fish, and then ate them to prove that he truly corporally was there. And you could consider those as additional signs of Jesus' ministry, proving miraculously that he is who he says he was. He is God, and this God, as a man, has now resurrected. Now, as John concludes his, gospels, his gospel, he doesn't just finish with the last action of Jesus and conclude. He actually summarizes up in some of the passages we've already read before. He provides the purpose for his book. If you had read the gospel of John and didn't realize that all the way through he was trying to compel you to believe, he then tells you. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, <coughs> which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. <coughs> and then in his final two verses, John gives further insight into his role as an apostle writing this gospel. In chapter 21, verses 24 and 25, he says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The Gospel of John is unique among the Gospels and among Scripture. 
the beloved disciple pulls back the curtain of what he has seen and heard and felt as he accompanied the ministry of Jesus. As one commentator said, John shows Jesus, who came from the side of the Father, from the perspective of one who leaned on Jesus' side. We see the depth of intimacy that Jesus had with his Father from one who was there with him at every step. Perhaps no one else saw what John did as he lived with Jesus. And his gospel allows us a gloriously deep picture of the majestic person and love of Jesus Christ. Let us read it with fondness and give thanks to our God who has revealed himself so clearly and wonderfully in the words of Scripture. And with that, we are dismissed. Thank you for coming.